Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if you're always uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, game, ink weight, I'm every element around. This is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff, and I'm here at Geek Girl Con. This is my second day here, and we are in the exhibit hall, and we are at the Girl Genius booth, and I'm going to let the creator of Girl Genius, um, creators of Girl Genius, introduce themselves, and then we'll get started on how awesome your comic is, and how it relates to science, and how it gets people interested in science. I'm Kaya Folio, and I am one of the co-creators of Girl Genius, and I also, um, I'm one of the writers. My husband, Phil, and I write Girl Genius together, and he draws all the pictures. We have a third who does the color work, but he's not here today. Hi, I'm Phil Folio, and with my wife, I write Girl Genius, and I do the art, and the colors are done by uh, Cheyenne Wright. So, um... My friend here, Bonnie, who has been here the whole entire time. Listeners, I have not introduced her yet, but I'm going to introduce her today, and she's going to be part of this. I'm just going to ask. Yeah, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, what you do, and she loves Girl Genius. I'm going to say it for her because she's not going to say it. <laughs> My name is Bonnie Spatovsky, and I'm the young adult librarian at the Puyallup Public Library. I do teen programming, um, purchasing books, and do a lot of advocating for teens and library services and how great comics and geekdom is and ties in with it. Excellent. So we're just going to get right into us. Give us the premise of um, Girl Genius and um, how, in your view, you're trying to get science out there for everyone. Girl Genius is a story of adventure, romance, and mad science. Um, it's very pulpy. It's very silly. We are, are both very interested in science and really enjoy listening to scientists talk, as you know from our conversation before we started here. And, um, but in a lot of ways, what we are doing with Girl Genius, it's not hard science fiction. It's very goofy movie magic building a monster style science it's it's like we think scientists are really cool and we write stories about really cool scientists but we're not scientists we are storytellers and we are we are very silly people so we write a lot of very silly stuff um, now that said we get people because we've been doing Girl Genius for so long now. How long? We started, we, we published the first volume in late 1999. And we started it as, as the 32-page flimsies, um, the, the magazine style that go out to comic book stores. In 2005, we stopped making the little volumes, the little uh, magazine style, and we went to a webcomic format. and. What we have continued to do is when we have enough pages, we put it together into a, um, into a collection. And so we now have 15 collections, and we are creeping up on needing to publish the 16th, which we just finished on the website. So we have been doing this long enough that we are getting people who come up and say, I am now in the science program at the university because of you, because I read this, and it got me all excited about science. And, and that's terrific, because, you know, we're not... We're not telling stories of actual science, although we will throw jokes in there. We're telling fantasy stories about scientists as basically wizards. 
But you're sparking an interest, right? <laughs> Bonnie's giggling because that term spark, and this is spark science, has some relationship to your story. And can you tell us something about that? Maybe I'll let Phil fill that in. Sure. The spark is what we call that really unquantifiable aspect that turns a person into a mad scientist. The inclination to kind of go out of control and say, well, yes, I could just, you know, put wheels on this thing, but instead of just wheels, how about, you know, how about treads? And then maybe, you know, it shoots out lightning and then, ah, you know, giant stompy feet and, you know, and then it will take over everything, you know, like that's, that's kind of the spark in a nutshell. So, being a scientist, <laughs> you, you do get that mad scientist trope that a lot of people see, but the good thing about your mad scientist character is that she's not Doc Brown from Back to the Future, right? She's, right. she's a, a female, for one, um, and, and so it's almost like you're playing with the mad scientist stereotype in a way that's slightly, I mean, it's more complicated. It's not one note. It's not all good. It's not all bad, but it's complicated. So can you, and, and I, I did want to say that, yes, even though you say your stories are silly and that, but... That's how we can talk to people. That's how we spark that interest. That's how we that we that's how we get people at least talking about science and not being so scared. So I think silly is good. I love silly, and I think you're awesome. So t tell me something about this complex mad scientist identity. So because we cannot leave anything alone, we we love playing with tropes and and. With um, our main character, uh, people always want to call her Girl Genius like she's a superhero, but that's, that's not her name. The, the title of the book is Girl Genius. The character's name is Agatha Heterodyne. And when we started working on her, and we started working on her back in 1993, uh, we worked on this story for a long time before we brought it to publication, we wanted to do a mad scientist girl. And we started with the basic tropes. We started with the wild hair and the, the distraction and the crazy. And, but the minute you start writing like that, you start thinking, why? Why, is, why are they like this? Why is, it, you know, why, why is this character evil? What, what would make this character evil? It's, it's so common to have a character, a villain, who's just, I'm so evil, and never question why. Um, so, and, and I think that's how writing happens. You, you start asking yourself questions. You start with a really basic idea. So with the tropes, there are so many mad scientist tropes out there. And they're hilarious. They're, they're funny. They're, they're silly. And, and you, you know, you say Doc Brown from Back to the Future. There's Frank, the old Frankenstein movies, especially Bride of Frankenstein has Dr. Praetorian. Dr. Pretorius? Ooh, I've got his name wrong. I, I've just lost cred. And, uh, but he's another... Th this is a, a part of the movie where, where they're being very, you know, like, oh, here's our monster movie. And they stop the whole movie for this goofball character to do this, this thing with... He's got little people in jars. Just, be I think, because they had figured out how to make it look like their actors were tiny. And so, by golly, they were going to do that. Uh, you know, so they wrote a scene into this story. And... You know, those characters are so much fun to play with. And I think a lot, of, a lot of what we go for with mad science is exactly that. Hey, I've just figured out a way to put people into jars. I'm going to do that. Uh, is that really, a good idea? There's really no call for that. I don't care. I can do it. This is a proof of concept. <laughs> yeah, we do have fun with that. Our heroine is more the style of, of science hero, the, the type who's a, a, you know, 
theoretically a good guy, although sometimes she gets ideas that might not be the best ideas. And she relies on her friends. And she has friends around her to say, whoa, maybe not so much of that. <laughs> so, you know, we, we have a good time with that, too. So you were saying, I, I like that, too, though, that you're telling a story that maybe scientists can't work all on their own. And that's another mad scientist stereotype, you know, that they're they're at the bench, they're alone. Oh, the eureka moment. Right. Well, and, and that's and that's not true, right? Scientists don't sit alone by themselves and have these these brilliant things. I mean, it it has happened in the past. It does happen every once in a while, but the majority of science is done in collaboration. So, I, I could see farther because I stand on the shoulders of giants, right. something like yeah. that. But, but not even standing on the shoulder of giants. I mean, I think it's more of like we're all standing together. You know, we're all standing on the shoulders. We're all on this this like pyramid, like a like a cheerleader pyramid, kind of something like that. You know, and where it's it's very huge. This is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff, and today we're at Geek Girl Con interviewing the creators of the webcomic Girl Genius. So I wanted to go back though in time because I asked all of my interviewers this, um, interviewees, how did you get into writing? Um, what what is your background? Why do you like science so much? Well, that's a hard question. As far as getting into writing, I believe. Whether it's true or not, I believe that children, uh, you know, are storytellers. Humans are storytellers. At a certain point in our development, some of us are told, leave it to the professionals, you're not good enough, or, or it becomes hard and, and kids don't want to do it. The ones that don't stop turn into people like me. I'm just kind of doing what I've always done, you know, ever since I was a child, you know, imagine things and thought of things. And for me, at least, and, and also for Phil, you know, we didn't get squished. So we, we just kept on going. Me personally, why I like science, again, I always, I was always the kid out there, like digging in the owl pellets with the other kids telling me I was a freak and, uh, and always interested in, you know, astronomy and in the science. I, I loved the, the science in school. Uh, it was always interesting. It was always fun. I ended up going in an art direction rather than a science direction, just because, probably because it was easier for me. Uh, frankly, I, I'm ashamed to say, but uh, you know, and because if you're a storyteller, you you kind of still get to have all that other stuff. But you know, it's it's like a great buffet. You can you can pick and choose, and you can play with whatever toys you want. And and so yeah, I don't I don't have a deep understanding of any one branch of science, but I do get to go and read up on a lot of different things because it interests me and because it's exciting and because it it sort of sideways relates to my work. And I'm a science fiction artist or and a science fiction author. I was just going to say that I do notice a lot, this is Bonnie, a lot with the storytelling that you're able to work in scientific concepts that um, readers may not be aware of. So, for example, you've got Higgs in the story, um, and his name is a tip-off. And I think it, a lot of the times then readers, um, because there's so much lore and so much background to the story, if they go and start to do that research, then it leads them into the directions of finding those scientific concepts and just learning more about them. And that's one of the things that I enjoy, that the story is so layered. 
Well, I, I want to add to that because I think that we were talking about earlier where how do you get non-one-note characters because you have to ask why. And before our um, before we started recording, we were talking about this this question of why. Like when we're in undergrad, we really need to, or we're, when we're college students, when we're even children, we need to really ask why. We can't just memorize. And we, you were telling me a story, and I re wanted to know if you wanted to share that story because I, I, I really like it. I think it's um, really interesting that you said you liked writing and you liked science, but I see that connection of you asking why about your characters and building that, but also in science, you and at least in actually all sciences, we have to ask why. We can't just memorize facts and uh, suddenly we're scientists. Catalog and cataloging things really has value. You you know if, if someone has cataloged, you know like in natural science, if someone has cataloged all of these these critters that are out there, then it makes your your research a lot more a lot easier because uh, you know you already have these things laid out for you. You don't have to go out in the field and hunt every single bug down again. Uh, good luck with that. So. The, the story that I was telling you is, is my, my crowning glory. Um, I, was, I was one of these kids who was always terrible at math and always terrible at math and couldn't memorize things well and couldn't really figure out how to make the numbers work when I was thinking about them. And when I was in high school, I started to develop Crohn's disease. Oh, we didn't know that that was what was wrong at the time. So I missed a lot of school. And there was a lot of, oh, you're malingering or, oh, you're just, you know, whatever. But... Um, but what happened is I missed about half of my, my math course. And instead of being able to just be a good little student and sit there and kind of listen and, you know, do okay in math, okay was never that great, uh, I had to go home with my textbooks, look at my textbooks, think about them, go back and my poor instructor, I, I, you know, I was in there at lunch, I was in there after school, I was in there before school saying, what about this? What about this? I don't get this. I don't understand this. And because I had to think about how those numbers were working together so that I could get the right answers, and, and, and academics were really important to me. Uh, I, was, I was that kind of kid. Uh, because I had to work at it and think about it, I started to understand how the numbers worked together and why I could, I could start at the beginning and figure out how the math worked. And I got the best grade in the class that year. And my, my, my proudest moment was that I, um, there were a couple of questions on a test and they were questions from something that I had been told not to bother studying because it wasn't, we weren't covering that material. It turns out I'd been told the wrong thing, so I had studied the wrong thing. And I get here, and here are these two really complicated, strange questions on this test that I, I, th I thought, I have no idea, but I just worked them out. And I was later told that I was the only person in the class who got those two questions right. And, and so that was my proud, that was like my proudest moment in school ever. <laughs> It was all downhill from there, but <laughs> now I now I get to you know write write silly stories and and I don't actually do a lot of math unless it's for fun. Well, that see that's really important. I wanted to add to that that you you were basically shown problems that you've never seen before, you know, and you had a foundation in which you could tackle those problems efficiently, and that's what yeah, I, I'd been given the tools so I could work with them. And, yeah. I feel like one of those tools is the breaking down the barrier of actually forcing yourself to ask why. You know, and, and for my students in, in physics, and hopefully some of them listen to this show, if you can uh, tackle a problem that you've never seen before and you do okay, that means you have a great foundation. You know, that means that you actually asked why, and that means that you are aware of what you 
have gaps in. So I would think I was telling you the story, you and Bonnie, the story about this sheet I give my students of algebraic, um, really common algebraic arithmetic errors that happen over and over again. And that moment in, wh in which you're taking a test and then you instantly remember something. Um, my, my friend used to call them the, uh, the math angels, that the math angels would come down and help you remember that. And, and every time you make an algebraic error, you kill one of those math angels. So please don't make these algebraic errors. But I mean, I really, really love this idea of connection between writing characters and doing physics. I love this connection that we're talking about. Is there any kind of science that you love talking about in your, in your series? You know what I really love is I, I'm really interested in the history of scientific discovery. I'm really interested in how people started getting interested in, in asking these questions. And I mean, I'm no expert, but I love reading books about the Enlightenment and, and how people started, um, you know, I mean, that transition between natural science. That, that actually, it's, it's more, if you go farther back, it's the transition between wizardry, I swear, I just, I'm like, yeah, and alchemy and into, into a more quantifiable science and how that worked out and some of the weird stuff that happened in between where people weren't sure what questions to ask yet. So they asked all the questions and it just got very strange. I, I enjoy that a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I will say for me it really felt, I, I always used to joke that it felt like the math fairy had come down and hit me on the head really hard with, with the math wand and, and said, you will now understand it. Bam! And I was like, oh, suddenly it all makes sense. This, there's a pattern to this. This isn't just random stuff that cruel adults are making me memorize. This, this all has a pattern. It all makes sense. Oh. <laughs> So one of the things that I, when I try and share Girl Genius with potential readers is um, how much I enjoy that it has a strong female lead and a really diverse set of characters that are working as her friends, as sometimes henchmen, and then other sparks who also reflect different um, diverse cultures. Even though it's set in an alternate Europe, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the representation of women in the comic and having so many strong female characters like Zetha and Violet as well as Agatha put you on the spot on this one. We just write a lot of female characters. I don't know. I mean, it isn't really a conscious, you know, like, oh, we have to have these people, you know, we have to make sure we've got this quota or that, you know, we just write a bunch of people in and and I know that um, Phil likes to draw a lot of different kinds of people. So he draws a lot of different kinds of people and we've got some silly, um, you know, world building stuff in there that we that we enjoy that may or may not ever come to light. That but you know things about why you've got all kinds of people with different skin colors in this part of Europa or that part of Europa or multiple arms and legs. And, and, yeah, and people with with lots of extra bits, and especially in a city like Paris where you've got the this major university with a lot of people working there who are you know having a lot of fun, and so uh, that that's all fun for us. I really enjoy getting to see um, the representations, like once you got to the librarians, the great library, I was just thrilled, and that you have this, yes, you have this giant warrior librarian who's out there. <laughs> well, that, that, that there's a warrior librarian is not a spoiler, we won't go into, yes, yes. There's a whole culture of the great library where 
they're, they take their acquisitions very seriously and they're armored for it. And, yeah. and in some cases they have to go out to, to very strange remote. So this is a world where we have lost laboratories out in the wastelands where somebody was working on something and then bad things happened. The heroes came through or, or something, you know, and now you've got, you know, in, I mean, we've certainly got our share of lost temples and, and that standard pulp sort of thing, but we also have lost laboratories. And, but you know, those guys probably have some pretty good books and those librarians, they want them. So, you know, but, but they need their Indiana Jones type characters to go out and get them. It's, it's no joke to go into some of these places. So we haven't actually told any of those stories, but we think about them. <laughs> I really need to start reading this. I really like that question because I think that, and this is just for my own personal thing, but I watched AMC as a kid obsessively. I would like stay home from school and like watch AMC and like, like you know, I don't know why. AMC is um, the, um, the channel with the like 1930s, 1940s movies. It's the, it's the old timey t- uh, movie channel is what I would watch. And so I remember as a kid thinking that back when there were just no people of color because they weren't in the movies, right? Right, Right? so like I would see like, you know, an old Western or an old 1930s movie and they just weren't there so I just assumed, and I think that this is a a common kind of misconception that like people of color didn't exist in these regions. But I just overheard you saying that you have these stories in the back of your head and why these people of different cultures actually are in Europe is so refreshing to me and it's so wonderful because of course they existed. There was trade, you know, like, like, um, like, of course there were people that intermingled and talked to each other and learned different languages. And, and so um, I just want to say thank you for thinking about these things and why. I don't know. It seems really natural to us. And I, if we tried, and I'd hate to be shoehorning things in, but I'd also hate to not be, I'd really hate to only be drawing white people all the time. I mean, I'm not even the one drawing it most, you know, he's the one. It's Phil, it's Phil. But, but, you know, it would be hard for us, being the, the writers that we are, to try to constrain ourselves. So we just do whatever we want, and then we just make up backstories for why. You have a million more books to do. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, the other thing that's happening in Girl Genius is the story began kind of out in the sticks. I mean, at Transylvania Polygnostic University, but, you know, so that's like a small college town. And it has slowly been moving to more cosmopolitan areas. And our Europa, the more cosmopolitan the area you you wind up in, the more diverse it's going to become. That seems fairly realistic. I think it, in my experience, (laughs) you know, and so they're currently in Paris. And then they're they're heading to England, so they'll be in London, which is all underwater. So you definitely know it's not our our world. joining us. This is Spark Science, and today we are talking about mad geniuses with Kaya and Phil, their creators of Girl Genius. So can you tell me about any any other projects? I know you have so many um, Girl Genius fans, including my good friend Bonnie here. Are there any projects that you work on 
that aren't Girl Genius that are you working on now or that you did before that you would like your listeners to know exist? I, you just saw me signing the Magic the Gathering book. Back when Magic the Gathering, the trading card game, was new, um, we worked on that and we did a lot of artwork for that. Uh, we don't do that anymore, but that was fun back in the day. And Phil has done a lot of different stories over the years. He did a, a gaming comic called What's New with Phil and Dixie back in Dragon Magazine, um, back when I was 10 years old. Cough, cough. He did Xenophile, which was an adult title. He did Buck Godot's App Gun for Hire, which was a science fiction title, the more hard science fiction. I started right out of university with, with Magic the Gathering. So that's, yeah, it was extremely lucky. It was very, very lucky. Uh, and, and really, uh, baptism by fire. Oh, my. <laughs> and kind of went straight into Girl Genius from that. Uh, so I haven't really done a lot of other work. I've just, you know, I've done some magazine covers here and there. I've done some card art here and there. I don't do a lot of painting anymore. Mostly I, I like writing better. I would like to get back into painting, but... I'm so busy, and I'm, I, I do a lot of graphic design, too. So, uh, so I do all the graphic design for the comics. I run our website. I, I do all of the, oh, I don't know. Let's see. Phil draws the pictures, and then I take it, and I have to do the other stuff. You have to know a little bit about computer science and, and that kind of stuff to do your website. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. Uh, we, I, me, 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 I, I, I. Uh, <laughs> so. So you're saying you're like not a scientist, that you don't do these things. But the more I talk to you and interest, I am I am an interested amateur. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I believe in what Sid the Science Kid from PBS says and what Sid the Science Kid says. And he's a he's a Jim Henson uh, creation, Jim Henson company creation. He's a preschooler, I believe, and he goes to a very expensive preschool because there's only four of them and one teacher. <laughs> yeah, but um, the cartoon has these four kids with their teacher, and they have science journals, and they the beginning of the show is like, you're a scientist, what do you think? And I believe in that. I think that if you ask questions, if you're interested, if you can think up an experiment and actually run through it and, like, answer it, and it doesn't have to be, it can be a thought experiment, you know, I think you're a scientist. So and I think you're good at math. You do computer science, you run a website, you do Girl Genius, you're a scientist. I'm going to say it right now. And I'm just going to go, squee, that's awesome. Oh, no, that's funny. Too much knowledge of the scientific method makes helping your kid with the science fair really hard. Oh, it's awful. So. What, what, was, what was your child's science fair project? Oh, well, we did the mold on bread thing. I, I really try to let them do it as much as possible, and so we don't come up with the mo more spectacular stuff. But, you know, I'm always on the sidelines going, that's not the scientific method. That's not a hypothesis. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that is a volcano. <sighs> I do, why do they all want to the do it? We never did the volcano, but, you know. Do you, do you watch Bob's Burgers? No, I, oh. I don't really watch much of anything that isn't anime. Okay, well, it's animation so, on Fox, so I think you would like it. The, the TV show. But So is there any future plans for Girl Genius as animation, as a movie? Please tell me yes. Well, that, that takes other people because we're not animators. I know, Phil, you, I know you took your minor in animation, but that was enough to learn that animation is a lot of work. It's, I mean, we can barely get the work we're doing done. So, you know, we have an agent. Um, 
if somebody came along and said, we want to make a movie, we want to make, um, that would be really interesting. We've, we've had people who have been interested in the past, nothing's ever panned out. I want an anime, I want a BBC miniseries, and I want a video game. Oh my god, yes. Those are my three loves, you know, I'm like, those are, those are the things I like. Probably will never happen. But that's we're going to put it out there with with my 60 listeners and one of them will work for the BBC and we'll we'll make this happen just just you know, get give me some access and that's all I care about. old red dwarf sets and you know <laughs> oh my god yes this is in Europe, right? You you need accents, you need people in Europe. It's true, it's true. Yeah. BBC's worth that. Yeah, I don't know. I just I like what they do. I like I like their work. I even like their cheesy work. You're thinking like live action BBC. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I talk about live action, I'm like, oh, the BBC. They're awesome. Yeah. So this know. is going to be like steampunky, like BBC, like British, French. I know what would happen. You know what will happen is I keep telling my kid because I'm like, you know, I've got, I've got two children. One of them has started taking an interest in the business. The other one is much more interested in making her own stuff, which is terrific. Uh, but I tell them, you know, someday you're going to be stuck with this. And the the B the B team or the, the the second generation of creators that comes along because because if you make a thing there's always the thing you make and then there's the thing that whoever comes along later makes once you're dead and uh, you know I'm like those guys the the second generation of creators at least they'll have a lot to work with and they'll probably do a better job like making it all tidy and and flashy than we are because we're just kind of you know writing this serialized thing and we do know how it ends but you know the getting there is still kind of you know all over the place and and we have you know we'll we'll get an idea and we'll go off and do something fun that that amuses us but would never fit into a movie so I'm like I know whoever comes along and does that secondary stuff I, I think they'll do a good job. I hope they'll do a good job. You have so much faith. And they'll, well, they'll have a lot to work with, like I said. You know, I mean, I look at, I, I finally sat down and read all of the, um, the Song of Ice and Fire books, you know. I did not. I have not watched the show. Uh, I have no idea. But I enjoyed the books and they were fun. And, and I understand from my friends who have watched the show that they've made a lot of changes. But, but a lot, and some of my friends think they're very, very good changes. I keep my ears open even when I don't watch the things and you know and I'm like well sometimes sometimes the people who make the movie they make really interesting stuff you know I love Jane Austen and I love watching the Jane Austen movies and I've got a couple of Emmas that I watch back to back because between them they make one really cool movie <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm not a Jane Austen reader I am I am um, sadly listeners I came late to reading in my life I wasn't a big reader but I've watched like every Jane Austen everything and and I get oh, really good some of them are really boring but some of them are really good so I get in huge fights and I probably will get in a fight with you about this about the Pride and Prejudice the miniseries versus the new one with Keira Knightley I really really like the Keira Knightley one and I've nice things in it that had nothing to do with Jane Austen but they were still nice right and I really liked that one and I did yeah see 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 <laughs> I, I'll admit I was sort of watched the Keira Knightley one and went well that was interesting okay um but but it had some, I know it's not accurate it doesn't have to be accurate to be good though you know and, and that's my point with with my work is 
oh my gosh, if they tried to film Girl Genius exactly accurately, frankly, I think they'd be missing some tricks. I think there's some stuff in there that people who are really good at, at film could do that we never even thought of or couldn't do. And I'd hate to have them not do it just because it wasn't in there. It's very open-minded. This is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff, and today we're at Geek Girl Con interviewing the creators of the webcomic Girl Genius. I also get in fights with people about Stardust, the movie of Neil Gaiman, and and I saw the I saw the movie first, and then I read the book. I did. I loved the movie, and I'm I'm a kid who needs escape. I'm an adult now, but I was a very kid that needed that escape, you know, and, and so I needed that happy ending. I liked Disney, and I remember t um, hearing somebody talking, I think it was Chris Hardwick who made a flippant remark, and he was like, you know, I don't like Disney because I had a horrible childhood, and I was like, oh my God, is that why I like Disney? Because <laughs> your life is so crazy that Disney was so stable, and it was so happy ending, and it was like where the good feelings were. It's easy to bash Disney. Yeah. because they're a great big giant sitting duck yeah. but their work is positive and happy I mean sometimes you know if you're a person I, I, I have a rotten core to my soul and I'm kind of a bad person and so I do kind of get that eye roll going sometimes but but then there's that other part of me that says knock it off this is happy, this is nice, this is positive, there is nothing wrong with that. You can go watch your surly stuff if you want to. It's out there too. And boy, do I have some evil stuff I like. But I also appreciate that, that positive, like the world can be good. I think that's a message I like to hear sometimes. <laughs> the world doesn't have to suck, it's nice. Look, this is happy. And the end of Stardust in the book, like many Neil Gaiman books, kind of just kind of trails off and it's kind of just keeps on going and it's not as happy as the movie ending, which I loved. I did want to talk maybe with Bonnie about Disney. Can I talk to you about okay. Disney real quick? Yeah. Um, because like, and we, we can talk about Disney just for a, a side note right here because I was talking to somebody and being a woman scientist, you get a lot of like, you know, princesses and Disney and don't let your kid wear pink and all this kind of stuff. But Disney was one of the first companies that actually had somebody who had black hair. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, and it was one of the first companies that I would cartoons and watch and that had somebody who wasn't, who maybe looks like me, you know, and, and it was, for me, and it had so many characters, so many characters that there was one. Okay. <laughs> I was an ugly kid. No, no, no. I wasn't the I most. Mean, I, I was white and I had the lighter hair, but I never thought any of them looked like me. Yeah. Oh, if only. I don't, like, the closest thing I had was Snow White because she had black hair. That was all I had. For me, Disney was happy. Disney had so many characters that even if it didn't look like me, there was a personality that I was like, oh, maybe we're the same. You know, maybe we have something. And, like, I think um, they had Mulan, and they, there's so many, like, there's so much uh, commentary about, like, oh, the princesses need to save them, and none of them can fight, and, like, they go on and on, like, have you forgotten about Mulan? Like, she went 
to the army. She is so late in my experience. <laughs> she is so late, but I don't know. When I was playing a princess, when I was a kid, and I, I, was, I was up in trees and I had a bow and arrow because I was some kind of Robin Hood princess, I guess. So I never had a problem with the princess thing. I was like, yeah, I'm a princess and I'm out here killing monsters or, or whatever. I mean, I, I just loved that stuff. Yeah. I didn't get to wear pink because, you know, we it was the 70s and um, feminist girls didn't get to wear pink. But uh, What if you liked it? Too bad. You weren't supposed to. You weren't allowed to. And it was bad and wrong and you were supposed to be doing what the boys did. I have issues. Right. Me too. Me too. <laughs> you know, what's funny is actually uh, we've got a friend who has a seven-year-old who... Um, who is very much of the mind, like, if she's hanging out with boys, she needs to not like pink, she needs to not like girly stuff. But she's just recently, because her mom has started to tell her, like, you, it's really okay. Like, you can like what you like, and that doesn't mean that you can't then play with these boys. You can enjoy pink and still be tough. Um, and it's been really wonderful to see her starting to warm up to being able to, to do that, right. you know, and accept that. Right, and, and I think that the message that I try to give um, college students and other seven-year-olds, because I also have a seven-year-old, and my seven-year-old and the seven-year-old she was just speaking of are friends, but I want to tell them that, like, what is wrong with being feminine? There, there's nothing wrong with being masculine, and there's nothing wrong with being feminine, and there's nothing wrong with things that are in between or ambiguous. And, like, and obviously they don't understand those words because they're seven, but I say, like, you know what? You can like what you like, and what I can do as a mom is I can expose them to as many things as possible and let them choose. Tell them that, like, if you feel pressure to not like pink or you feel pressure to not like Batman, that that is not okay. I'm going to give you all these things, and you pick what you like. You know, I don't know if you have the same issue. I had a weird, well, I've got a boy and I've got a girl. And I had a weird moment many years ago now where my son had the My Little Pony shirts and was going to wear them off to school. And I had that moment of like, is that, are you going to get killed? It turns out, and you know, this is just a big shout out to the Seattle School District. Hey, rock on, you guys. You've done a good job. You know, he, he wore those My Little Pony shirts to school for ages, and nobody ever... It turns out the schools are really different than when I was there, and... Very different. It makes me, makes me stand up and cheer, so... You know, and, and she's, you know, as, as things go, My Little Pony is pretty weak sauce as far as getting you beat up, but it might have back in the day, and I don't know. They're just... The, the more I, I listen to the guys at the schools and the things they like and the things they talk about, I'm just like, the world is getting better. Yeah. This makes me happy. <laughs> me as, as the parent of a four-year-old boy, we, we try not to be like, we try to be very gender neutral with the way that we do the toys, clothing, things like that. And it's like, just, you know, do your thing. But also not like, try, <laughs> I don't know, sometimes I feel like you can be overly careful with that. Yeah. But, you know, you've got a kid and you're afraid somebody's going to smack them. Yes. But because the world is scary and, you know, it, and it turns out not as scary as you might think. Hooray. It's nice to hear, and I, I see that so much. In this area, anyway. Yes. In the Northwest. But I'll also say, working with teens, I see so many of them come in who, um, you know, they want to they wanna be bronies, they want to be, um, they're into anime and, and they're guys, and maybe they enjoy, like, a good romantic anime. And I'm just like, yes, let's do this, and let's then, like, I can help you meet other people in the library who also share this. Like, make, like one of the best things we hear at like library programs from teens are when they get to meet people of shared interest, and they go, "Oh, 
I'm not the only one who is into cosplaying or into this sort of storyline. Like, that is so exciting to be able to make that sort of connection. So it's nice to hear that the school district does it too. Well, as, as the kid who, you know, was always... It seemed like. It turns out, oh, no, everybody was a nerd. I don't know where they all were, but, uh, you know, they sure weren't at my school. But, you know, as the person who sat there, you know, reading The Lord of the Rings and taking endless amounts of crap for it, it's really nice that they now have the Internet and the librarians who will point them at the other anime fans and the other, you know, people who like that stuff. <sighs> and that's why this con is so important, Geek Girl Con. And I, I feel like, um, and Bonnie, and you're so important, and the library, and the t- uh, dealing with teenagers. Um, because I feel like, like you said, now we're in an age in which information can be shared so easily that you can find that person. So you're not alone. I mean, that, that feeling of alone, I... 100% agree with you. Like, where were all these geeks? I remember in school being made fun of because I would rush home to watch Batman the Animated Series in my teens. I loved that series. It meant so much to me. It was really good. My friends, again, air quotes, listeners, would tell me, why do you like a, a cartoon? You know, we're older than that. Why do you do that? And I'm just like, because it's awesome, you know? And, and then I went to college and I majored in physics, and then the people started making fun of me because I didn't leave, ha- hadn't read Lord of the Rings. And they made fun of me, and so I spent a whole summer between, between two years of physics reading, all, reading Hobbit and Lord of the Rings the, through the whole summer, and I fell in love with it, and I was looking at the, the hills north of Seattle, which basically looked like Hobbiton, right? It looks like, you know, and it, was, um, it looks like I the world. It too. Yeah. I see it, too. Yeah, and, and it, I was just immersed in it, and um, it's just so crazy how this idea of belonging and identity, it's just, it's everywhere, right? You know, you know what we take from this? Humans are mean. Humans are we mean. will take whatever we can get to pick on each other and be terrible to each other. Maybe we need to grow out of that as a species. We will. I have faith. Yeah. And I wanted to live in that hill. I wanted to go hiking, and then I... One hill, as you're driving north to Bellingham from Seattle, there's this one that just needs a castle on top of it. Yes. Every single time my sister went to UW, I went to Western growing up, and we would drive to Seattle and drive back so many times, and I was reading Lord of the Rings at the time, and I would just, and it was in the summer, so, you know, the Northwest is so beautiful and green in the summer, and I would look at those hills, and I would be like, I I was like, we're just going to hike those, and I'm going to read these books, and I'm going to immerse myself. There's amazing hiking up near Western. Oh, we had so much fun. I I went to college at at, uh, Western for years, so I I have a little bit of knowledge of the area up there. But when I was little, and we would take road trips, and we would go east, and we would cross the Cascades, those are always the Misty Mountains for me. It's going to Mordor, right? uh, Yes! Okay, so when I'm sorry, when we moved up, we moved up from Southern California, um, and my husband and I were both just like super excited to be going somewhere where it was going to be green. And his favorite author is Terry Brooks. So as we're driving through Oregon, he is pointing out these hills to me, and he's explaining. And I've read through the um, Shannara Shannara series; it's been a while. And he's pointing out the hills to me, and he's going, "This is what he was writing about. This, this is this area." And just like it was so exciting to be moving up to this place that was just like lush and just beautiful. And has water. And has water, and not so much smog. <laughs> so, but smog exists in the uh, in the series.
Today we're talking about the intersection between geek culture and science at Geek Girl Con. I just, I love geeking out with you. Um, I'm going to let you man your booth soon, but I could do this forever. I could do this forever. But I, I've been asking um, all of my interviewees two questions. One, because this is a con and I'm dressed up as Dr. Light, which my listeners hopefully know about by now. If you could have a super um, power, what would that superpower be? And what would be your origin story? Now you are writers, so this better be good. No, no, Russia, no. And then second um, um, question, how do you see your profession? So this is science fiction writers, I would say, um, or you know, graphic novelists. How do you see them portrayed in the media and you know, in pop culture, in movies, and how accurate is that? Okay, superpower first, because that's easy, because we already answer, you know, yeah. talk about that question all the time, and I'm like, I, so I play a lot of WoW. And oh my god, me too. I used to play, and then I, I got pregnant, and I had to give it up like a month before, because I didn't want to like ignore my baby. Yeah. Well, fair. So that was, that was eight years ago. Uh, so I, I would, I always wanted, I always wanted to be a healer, and I, I have never had time to learn to be a good healer in WoW, so I would take the healing <laughs> superpower. Yeah. Uh, and as for uh, origin story, I have no clue. <laughs> like, maybe the, that healing is some mystical, like, origin, and you were on top of the mountains for, in Bellingham? There you go. I, I guess, uh, hmm. You fell into a lake of healing? <laughs> spring, spring of drowned girl. Yeah. No, um, I, yeah, I guess, um, sure, something like that. No, I, I love that you were sharing with me your, like, dreams of BBC and, like, all that kind of stuff. Because, like, I have so many dreams of one of, the, like, this show is one of them and it's doing okay. But, like, this other dream, I've always wanted to have this graphic novel of the story of robots and, like, and, like, very steampunky. But, like, I don't know, a very epic story but with robots and, a, you know, a monarchy and, like government overthrow like I would love to do something like that so I love that we're you know we're open to saying these things and maybe they'll happen how are writers how are science fiction writers portrayed how are graphic novelists portrayed how hard is this job and how are they not showing that on TV you know I'm drawing a blank as to castle what I which I've never seen me neither I'm sorry I don't watch a lot of television I, I have to go all the way back to chasing Amy that's not that far oh, it is for me yeah. <laughs> not for me where the guy is sitting at the booth and and the and the poor inker is sitting there and, and the the fan is giving them this terrible time about well you're just a tracer so you're just a trace your trace well no they draw the stuff and then and I know I I am a terrible inker but I know how important a good inker is and I know that they're not just tracing those lines and I know um, the difference because I've seen it with Phil he's used a lot of different inkers over the over time and I have seen what different inkers bring to to the artwork and and so that makes me laugh um, but it's also a really good a really good representation of how people will walk up to the booth and so the nicest things people say to you are at conventions People will come up and they will literally, literally say, "I, I have, I'm dying, or I have cancer, or I was getting through this, or I was in the military, and you know, reading this helped me get through it." And, and that's really 
overwhelming and you kind of have to go lie down with a cold cloth on your head and like ah, ah, hyperventilate a little because you saved a life because well I don't know if I'd go that far but you know we helped uh, helped them distract you know we gave them some wonderful escapism and I love the word escapism and I love escapism uh, and I think as as the type of animals that we humans are we need it and and I don't think it's bad uh, but also the worst things the most horrible things people say to you are at conventions people will walk up and say the most appalling things oh my God, I, I need to hear this now well I, I you know I, I'm not really you know up for for any of the I mean they'll come up and they'll be like oh that that part where you wrote this bit you know that really sucked or or they'll they'll make fun of you for something that they think you got from something you've never even heard of or or like you stole it yeah oh yeah especially you know that's that's calmed down now that we've been around for a while but at first you know you come out with a, a new story and this this goes out to all the new creators out there you come out with a new story you totally got it from somewhere else for like the first several years you know you you obviously were you know stealing it from x y or z and then it will calm down and uh but you know the, there's there's like the great the great story pool out there of, of there if you look at tv tropes for any length of time you will you will be crushed as a writer, but you will also realize that none of this is new, and and there's always something people can point to and say you got this from here or there. But just you know, I mean, anything from personal comments about how you look or or what you're wearing, or uh, to to comments about your writing and you know how they didn't like this or didn't like that, or or the people who feel the need to tell you that well I, I haven't actually read any of this. Well, that's okay. It, it's all right. Most of the planet has not read this. It's all right. Uh, you know, you but assume that everyone in the world has read your comic. Put it in the you know people will put it in this very strange way where I'm supposed to be offended. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. So it, it, the point is that conventions get very emotional. Uh, and they're extremely draining. Uh, even the good stuff, which I love to hear, can be very, very surprising and and make you really think about what you do. They showed a little of that, and I think it's because the people who made that movie, uh, the Chasing Amy, had some Friends. fingers in the fingers in the industry. Yeah. I know they did, and uh, uh-huh. so they they know what they're talking about. But boy, anything more recent. I guess when you see a writer in a story, it's usually a guy and he's usually out in the wilderness with his dog. And it, No, wait, that's author photos. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I really like that you're talking about this idea of uh, the realism of what an inker actually does, because I, ha- I had no idea. None. Well, I, didn't, um, I didn't until I... I was a high school student, and I got a hold of the, there was ElfQuest, which I loved, yes. and then there was a new, a new story, a new ElfQuest story, and I bought it from the comic book store, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking something is subtly off about this. There's something, something different here, and it took me as, as a, a, you know, a dopey kid forever to figure out what it was, and it was because I just wasn't savvy about the process and how things were made, but I could see. I was like, something's different. Something's different. So the the inker's um, touch is is very much in there. So I'm going to talk. I'm going to ask this question, this last one, to both of you, um, Bonnie, and um, and we're going to say, if you could give advice to a writer, because I know there's so many people that come to these cons that are love science fiction, love fantasy, and they're like, I got this great story. Um, what would you tell them? We've already gone over like ask why of your characters, which is I think probably number one for me. But what other like advice would you give them? I feel funny about ask, answering this because like 
I went to school for creative writing and then decided to do librarianship instead. You've read a lot of books. I've read a lot of books, but I keep thinking, like, you should try writing. And, oh, man. Anyway, but what I would say to the people that I see who um, who are aspiring writers, who have just had work come out, are, are trying to get this on, is to just continue at it, to make time for it and practice all the time. Because even the authors that I love and admire and are just passionate and fangirl about, um, a lot of the times I see the development that they've done over the years and how their writing style has changed and that it improves. I mean, this is, this is like any skill. Just practice, do it as often as you can, and keep at it. Well, part of, part of what I would say is the same thing. Uh, the most important part of writing... And, and I have to tell myself this all the time, by the way, because I, I'm still uh, very bad about sitting down and getting my fingers on the keyboard, uh, except when I absolutely have to, which is, you know, three times a week when I'm lettering comics. The most important thing is to get your butt in the chair and your fingers on the keyboard or, or your hands on the pen, however you like to write, and just, you know, spit it all out. And the, the biggest, hardest thing to get past is that that utter knowledge that you suck. You know you're terrible, but it's okay. That's all right, because most people do, and you've just got to get it out there, and then you can, then you can tweak it, and you can mess with it, and, and as you say, practice, you'll never get that practice if you don't allow yourself to get the stuff down that you know is kind of, uh, that you feel like, I mean, I, I personally feel like every idea I have is so cliche, and, and can be mocked, for being, oh, it's so cliche. I've seen it so many times. And the stories I love, I see so many times. And then I tell myself, how much shoujo manga do you read? How cliche is half of that stuff? Most of that stuff. Do you care? No, you read it anyway, don't you? Just write your stuff, it's all right. <laughs> so, and, and you know, once you've written it, you write the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and you get better every time and maybe that first thing doesn't sell or doesn't get, you know or you or you put it out there yourself and it just sits there like a dead fish but at least you did it and that puts you head and shoulders above everybody else who didn't and you know it's so there's bravery there's bravery involved and there's there's getting past that voice in your head that tells you you shouldn't you don't deserve it it's okay, you do, go. <laughs> you know, um, Again, the internet culture has helped us with that. We no longer have the gatekeepers we once did. So you can make your thing and you can show it to the world and it'll be fine and it's okay. Uh, my, my son writes fiction and he puts it on 4chan and asks for, um, he'll, he'll write stuff and he'll put it on 4chan and say, what do you guys think? And if, if that isn't bravery, I don't know what is. And, and you know, they're awesome because as long as you're not an arrogant jerk, they'll actually tell you what they think and if you don't get all sad, you'll learn something. So they're, they're not really as evil as everybody says they are. Well, oh yeah, no, they totally are. You guys are super evil. It's all good. Uh, it's all about being positive. Like you were yeah. just talking about, um, you were just talking about, we were, this whole thing is really about positive and stay, staying positive and trying to tell your, tell that evil voice in your head, like, shut up and I'm going to do it anyway. So thank you so much for talking with me. I, I had a great time. Um, and thank you, and I'm going to read your comics now. I'm going to do it. Thank you so much, Kaya. Thank you, Phil. You are both amazing. I'm going to give you hugs. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. 
Thank you for joining us. We just interviewed the creators of Girl Genius at Seattle's Geek Girl Con. My co-host today was Puyallup librarian Bonnie Svitovsky. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com, or go to kmre.org and click on the podcast link. Today's episode was recorded on location in Seattle, Washington. Our producer is Regina Barber DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. Special thanks to the organizers of Geek Girl Con. This is Spark Science, and we'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or KMRE.org, streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to sparksciencenow.com and click on Donate. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Right to radium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.